Hello, welcome to the episode in the Let People Prosper series. My name is Dr. Vance Gann. Welcome to the Let People Prosper show. Today, we're gonna have a great discussion about the federal budget. One of the things that influences all of our lives, um, we have to pay taxes, we see government spending, just so many factors that play a role in our lives that we really wanna make sure we understand what's going on. Uh, we know that the national debt is over $31 trillion now. Um, interest rates are going up, um, soaring in some, in some cases. And so today, I really wanted to bring somebody on the show that knows a lot about the budget and has been working on the budget um, really from the center for a number of of years now and has a great approach to looking at the spending, looking at the taxes, and, and I think we're going to have a great discussion today. So, Mark Goldwing, welcome to the Let People Prosper show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Great. Um, I'm looking forward to our discussion today. Um, I know you're always one, another one of those happy warriors uh, for the budget and good fiscal policy. So, um, and I've been following the work that you've been doing and the work of the Center, uh, the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget for a number of years uh, when I was at the White House and even at the Texas Public Policy Foundation and, and now. And so I know that you'll have a, a new report out that we're going to go through um, the CRFB Fiscal Blueprint for Reducing Debt and Inflation. So, so we're going to have a good discussion about that. And today is November 10th, 2022. So we're also right after the elections. Um, and, and so we're going to maybe have some discussion about what the next Congress should really do with the budget. But before we get into all that, let me give you uh, Mark's bio um, so you have a better idea of who he is and, and what we're going to be talking about today. So Mark Goldwing, and is that how you pronounce it, Mark? It's Goldwine, like the drink. Goldwine. All right. I thought that may have been. I should have asked you beforehand. Mark Goldwine is the Senior Vice President and Senior Policy Director for the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, where he guides and conducts research on a wide array of topics related to fiscal policy and the federal budget. He is frequently quoted in a number of major media outlets and works regularly with members of Congress and their staffs on budget-related issues. Previously, Mark served as the Associate Director for the National Commission on Fiscal Responsibility and Reform, also known as the Fiscal Commission, and Senior Budget Analyst on this Joint Select Committee on Deficit Reduction, the Super Committee. He also conducted research for Government Accountability Office, the World Bank, the Historian's Office at the Social Security Administration, and the Institute of Governmental Studies at UC Berkeley. All over the place, the Mark. <laughs> That's great. Um, in addition to his work at the committee, Mark serves on Martha's Table's Business Advisory Council and teaches economics at John Hopkins University and the University of California, D.C. Mark is a recipient of the John Hopkins University Excellence in Teaching Award and was featured in the Forbes 30 Under 30 list for law and policy. He holds a BA and MA from John Hopkins Universities, um, and you can find him on Twitter at Mark Goldwine. So, Mark, again, thank you. welcome to Let People Prosper Show. Well, I'm glad to be here. Excited, excited to chat inflation and budget and whatever else we're, we're going to talk about. All right. Great, great. Well, there's so much to go through. Uh, we also had an inflation number that came out today. Um, I think better. it was better than expected. Still running a little hot, but but hey, we'll, we'll, we'll take some um, improvements when we can get them. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that some. Um, but the first thing I like to do with my guests is really get to understand you, know, you a little bit more. What, what drives you? What motivates you to look at the budget? Or just in general, what is kind of your guiding star you know one of the things about about me is where, where the name of the show came from is is my, my kind of goal is to let people prosper <laughs> um so what really what really drives you mark sure well i mean i've been with the committee for responsible federal budget for most of the last 15 years and we are really a, a nonpartisan group with a bipartisan board maybe 40 percent republicans 40 percent democrat 20 percent independent they disagree on a lot of things uh how big government should be what the tax code should look like what we should do to this spending program and that one. But they agree that we as a country need to live within our means. 
And live within our means doesn't mean a balanced budget every year, but it does mean that the debt can't keep running faster than the economy. Now, me personally, I like solving problems. Um, I think that a lot of fiscal responsibility is about is about problem solving. It's it's about understanding that resources are finite and figuring out how to distribute them efficiently, how to take our existing spending programs and get more for less or get almost as much for a lot less, how to make the tax code more pro-growth um, while generating more revenue. I, I like these kinds of um, problem solving, and that's a lot of what I do in my job. Well, well that's fantastic, and you, you do a great job of it, Mark, so thank you for all the work that you're doing there. Um, kind of with your background and the research that you've done, and you've worked in a lot of different places, what are some of the key highlights that you would want to note about your career that got you to where you are today? So I, I started off in fiscal policy as a Social Security nerd. Back when I was <laughs> in college, um, back when I was in college, I did an internship um, during the uh, Bush Social Security um, reform and privatization push. And I was interning for one of those few members that was completely undecided. So I had to go through every single piece of legislation and read it and try to understand it and write up the stuff. And I got really interested in it. I ended up writing my senior thesis on it. If you look behind me, you'll see probably half these books are Social Security books. Um, <laughs> I got the politics of it, the economics of it, the fiscal uh, of it. And that's how I came to the budget issue is through Social Security. Social Security happens to be the largest federal government program but it's by far the only one. And over time, a, a cool thing about the budget is it touches almost every other policy area, maybe except for like Supreme Court nominations and nuclear non-proliferation. Everything else has a budget um, aspect. So some days I'm doing defense policy, some days it's healthcare, tax reform, retirement, uh, economic policy, inflation, stimulus. Uh, it's really cool that, you know, I've been doing this 15 years and every year I learn something new and every couple of years I take on a totally new topic. Um, maybe, maybe the highlight of my career was in 2010, I worked on the Simpson-Bowles Fiscal Commission. This is a bipartisan commission appointed by President Obama with Republican and Democratic senators. 11 out of 18 of them agreed to a package that really would have fixed our debt situation, made Social Security solvent, brought spending under control, brought in more revenue while reforming the tax code. Um, even though, unfortunately, it had 11 out of 18 of our members, it never, never passed Congress or even got a vote. But that was a very exciting time to see Democrats and Republicans really come together on, on what could have been a meaningful fix for our budget issues. Well, you definitely like to tackle the big things first if you're going after Social Security. <laughs> um, when, you, when you started off in those Bush years, those that must have been some interesting times of talking about it, going through the different variations of what the policy should look like. Um, and fortunately, or I mean, I guess, unfortunately, we're still discussing a lot of that. Um, what should be the next steps with Social Security? And I remember the Simpson Bulls. I remember there were a lot of good ideas that were being proposed at that time that ultimately didn't didn't pass. Um, what did you see of some of the biggest challenges of maybe the time of Social Security reform back in the mid 2000s or the Simpson Bowles? Yeah, well, the biggest challenge in fiscal policy is that it's always easier for politicians to give stuff away than to take stuff away. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're dealing with uh, with deficit reduction, you're dealing with politics of de-distribution. You're saying your taxes are going to be a little bit higher. Your, your benefit is going to be a little bit lower. Your services are going to be a little bit less. And even though we spend a painstaking amount of time trying to find the most efficient way to do it, the way where healthcare costs less, but you still get pretty much the same value, or the way where, yes, you get a you don't get that tax break, but that was a really bad tax break that was driving up your housing costs, it's still a lot more painful um, politically than saying, mm -hmm. you get a tax cut, and you get a new spending program, and you get more defense, you know? I mean, every politician wants to be Oprah 
Yeah. No one wants to be the one to, to tell people that we've overcommitted ourselves, that we are spending far more than we're bringing in revenue and we got to rein it in. And that's also true within Social Security. Look, we know this program has been headed towards insolvency. We've started this discussion in the early 1990s with some great plans that would have allowed us to phase in changes so slowly nobody would have even noticed um, and actually give people sort of additional uh, support. Even in 2010, when, when we proposed something with some symbols, we were able to phase in the changes over 40 years by, mm. by 2050. If you were to try to do the Simpson Bowls plan today and make it work, work, you'd probably have to phase in those same policies over about eight years. So wow. we are running out of time. And it is really tough to tell people, You're, we need you to work another year. We need you to accept a lower benefit. We need you to pay more in taxes. But those are the reality because under current law, Social Security cannot pay out full benefits 12 years into the future, which means it's something like 2034, all beneficiaries will get an across-the-board 22% benefit cut. And that's an unacceptable outcome. I, I agree. And the people that are receiving the, the Social Security benefits now or will in the future, I don't know if they don't know about it, but it's very difficult to say, well, you're going to get cuts today, to your point, which is a very good point. Um, it goes into some of the work by James Buchanan, right? Public Choice Economics, thinking about the rent seeking that goes on, but just the cost and benefits that are associated with politics. Um, it's not the same marginal cost and marginal benefits that we have maybe out in the private sector that because they need to win elections, <laughs> right? There's got to be some votes um, that they've got to be able to win in the process and be able to exchange what's happening in that political process as well. And Social Security, I'm glad you brought this up first because it is so important to think about. I mean, when it was created, what was it, 1935, right? Uh, during the Great Depression, under FDR, it was a way to really provide supplemental income to folks during that period of time. Um, not necessarily, from what I understand, I'd love to get your views on it, to, to live on. It seems like a lot of you know, retirees today are, are living on Social Security as their sole source of income. I know my grandparents did, uh, just to be honest about it. And 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 but that necessarily wasn't necessarily how it was initially created. Um, and now they have raised the retirement age a little bit. I think it's up to what 67, uh, where it was 65 or 63, and then up to 67 now. But we still have some major issues with it moving forward. Um, so how do we start to turn the tide? How do we how do we start to change the vision for where Americans really see Social Security and this sort of program overall? Uh, well, that, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, when Social Security was first created, it was insurance, basically yeah. insurance against the risk that you would actually make it into retirement, right? Yeah. So the Social Security age was 65. The average life expectancy was about 65. That doesn't mean some people use that to say, well, that means nobody was going to get it. No, no. that means that half the people got it, right? It was insurance in case you outlived your retirement. It has turned into a public pension program. And I think that's actually desirable. I think it's good that we yeah. have, um, you know, it's, it's definitely good we're living longer, no question. And it's good that we have this continued annuity insurance. But we don't all need the same amount. And in fact, the way the Social Security works, the more you earned in your lifetime, the more you get in benefits. Uh, um, and so I think there's a few things that we need to do. The first is we need to tell higher earners that they're still going to get Social Security, but they're not going to continue to get way more than lower earners. And they're going to have to provide more for themselves through retirement savings, through other vehicles. And they can do that already, by the way. Today's seniors are the wealthiest cohort in the history of the universe, hmm. or the no I should say. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> Hiring seniors often have millions of dollars in wealth. They don't necessarily need to top out at, um, you know, for a couple $80,000 a year of social and social security benefits or 70,000, depending on what they're, what they're doing. So I, I think we can make benefits more progressive. The second is, as we're living longer, many of us should be working longer. 
Um, it turns out working longer not only is, is good for the budget, but it's good for the economy. Longer work means a faster growing labor force and more production. And it's good for individuals. Um, there are studies that show that when people work longer, they accumulate more wealth and so they have higher income in retirement. They are happier. They are healthier. They, are, they have stronger social networks. They spend less time drinking, less time watching TV, lower divorce rates because they're not at home annoying their spouse all day. Like hey, right. every metric. This isn't like an every person, but on average, people do better when they work, stay in the labor force for longer. And so I think we need to think about encouraging delayed retirement, also more flexible arrangements where people can take more vacation and time to spend with their grandkids, where people can hmm. um, get re-educated in a different career, where people can phase into retirement consulting. So we need to rethink retirement. And then after we do all these things, make the benefit formula more progressive, get people to work longer, adjust the way we measure inflation, we're still going to have a hole to fill. And that's where I think tax revenue needs to come in. And, and given how much older a population we are, I think that we need to accept that younger folks were to pay a little bit more for our grandparents. And mm-hmm. so we should raise the amount of revenue coming into the system. I have a lot of ideas of how to do that in, in an efficient pro-growth way. Yeah. Okay. And uh, that brings up a lot of good points. Um, thank you for that, Mark. I wonder, is is one of the things in, that you may have worked on back in the mid-2000s, I know the w, you know George W. Bush administration was of privatizing part of Social Security, giving options for those who were newly enrolled or younger people maybe to get into private accounts. Is that something that you favor or or, or not? Or what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think here's the way to look at it. In the 1990s and early 2000s, Social Security was raising about 2% of payroll more in revenue than it was paying out on benefits. And mm-hmm. so taking that money and putting someone into a private account might have made sense back then. Now it's the opposite. We're, mm-hmm. we're paying maybe 3% more in benefits than we're bringing in revenue. And so to take another 2% away is going to make Social Security hold, hold deeper. And so while yeah. I think private accounts was an interesting idea in the 90s and 2000s, I think it actually be a really bad idea right now carved out of Social Security. Now what we could do instead is say, on top of Social Security, we're going to automatically enroll you in a retirement account. And maybe Mm. you can opt out, it's your choice, but we're going to change the default so that you're saving more for your own retirement on top of Social Security. And I do think that makes a lot of sense. Got it. No, that's that's good. Good insight there. You know, when we we start looking at What's had been happening with the budget just over the last couple of years? You know, when when I was um, the chief economist of Office of Management and Budget uh, from June 2019 to May of 2020, I helped write the president's uh, President Trump's last budget. And in that budget, we found 4.6 trillion dollars in savings, but it still didn't balance the budget until after 15 years. I kept trying to push us to do more <laughs> to to find a way to balance it sooner than that. And one of the things, and, and, and you've, you know, I've talked some about this, at least on Twitter, uh, is I'm in favor of a, of a spending limit. I think we need some sort of fiscal rule to start to rein in government spending over time, um, which I consider to be the ultimate burden of government is how much we spend. You know, the symptoms are taxes and other things, but really it's driven by the amount of government spending. And so if we were able to rein in government spending over time, if you looked over the last 20 years, uh, we ran up the national debt by $17.7 trillion. Um, if you just just match population growth plus inflation over that period of time, um, it would have been a one, $1 trillion surplus, right? Um, and, and so, and that's with different changes in the tax code and, and things of that nature. So that's $18.8 trillion swing by just limiting government spending. And I think that that would also boost economic growth. I mean, that's that's just from basically a static sort of analysis, just looking at 
growth trends between revenue and then the spending restraint and population and inflation. But but I know that like from your fiscal blueprint, but I want to get into that in just a minute. But in your thinking for the budget, you know, reining in the 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 growth of the deficit and balancing the budget, you know, over time anyway, what what what's the structure, structural framework that you have with the budget uh, whenever you're looking at it? Well, let me start with this. Um, there's a lot of advantages to having a balanced budget in the future, um, including fiscal room but it's not necessary for your sustainability and it's probably not politically achievable. Um, we estimate it would take $7 trillion of savings over the next decade. So that's like twice what you all came up with in your budget, just yeah. to hold debt equals a share of the economy. So right now debt is 97% of the economy. It's almost as large as the economy, just to hold it at 97% over the decade would take $7 trillion. Hmm. And so look, if we can do better than that, that's great, but $7 trillion is gonna be hard enough. And um, I support fiscal rules, but I don't think we're going to be able to do it all on the spending side. I think if we okay. tried to artificially put a spending cap, you know, politicians would do, they'd enact more tax breaks, you know, instead yeah. of it, um, instead of expanding K through 12 education, they would have a, you know, K through 12 tax deduction for, subse for, for subsequent spending, right? Instead of putting more money to housing, they'd expand the low-income housing tax credit. Instead mm. of sending people more cash, they'd send them more recovery rebates. So I, I think that because a lot of tax breaks can look like spending, um, just doing a strict spending limit wouldn't even wouldn't work. And so our framework does a little bit of everything. Um, I think the most important place to start is on healthcare for for two reasons. First of all, it's the fastest growing part of the budget other than interest. And yeah. secondly, it's the area where the government has the most control, direct control over inflation, because not only is it direct spend, but we're already setting the prices for a lot of healthcare through through the Medicare program. For better or for worse, the federal government is the insurance company, right? Yeah. So when we um, adjust the fee-for-service Medicare to appropriately account for the fact that, say, we're paying doctors that work in hospitals more money than doctors doing the same thing in private clinics, that saves money for the federal government, it lowers healthcare costs, and it also lowers the inflation rate. So we start with a trillion and a half dollars just from healthcare, different kinds mm -hmm. of healthcare. Um, we also propose another trillion, trillion and a half, I can't remember now, from discretionary spending caps, limit defense and non-defense growth, um, yeah, well, that was one and a half trillion. And I'll be sure to put all this in the show notes page too, but yeah, yeah. keep going. You're, you're good. <laughs> um, we propose revenue neutral tax reform, revenue neutral against extending the, the tax cuts. In other words, if we were to extend all the expiring um, to 2017 tax cuts, that would yeah. cost us like $3 trillion. We say instead, let's fully, we're going to extend most of them, but we're going to fully pay for it by cutting tax breaks. And so that'd be more taxes in the near term, but less taxes in the in the medium term relative to the to the current law, and then we we propose a surtax on top of that on corporate deficit reduction surtax on corporations and individuals. It's progressive, um, but it applies to, to to most people, and this will only be there as long as the deficit is in place. So if we can get to balanced budget, that surtax goes away. Hmm. Uh, there's lots of other things that we do, social security reform. A we propose this, a carbon tax where we refund most of the money, but use some of it for deficit reduction. Uh, changes to how we fund the highway system, federal retirement. I mean, you got to do a little bit of everything. You're not going to get this from only one part of the budget. And $7 trillion is not easy to find, let me tell you. But yeah. it's the absolute minimum you need just to hold the debt steady 
is a share of the economy. Yeah, no, no, it's it's good. And I think um, just as kind of a quick recap there, um, you know, in, in figure one, right, lower healthcare costs, one and a half trillion, reform the tax code, one trillion, limit discretionary spending, one and a half trillion, support affordable energy and infrastructure, 500 billion, so half a trillion, <laughs> uh, enact pro-growth social security reform, one trillion, enact further reforms, another half trillion. So that's where you get the six trillion in savings over the decade. And then another trillion dollars in net interest savings. So that's where you get the total seven trillion. So if you were breaking that down just for the audience is that it's two, $2.4 trillion comes from revenue increases and then $3.6 trillion from non-interest spending reductions. So, I mean, in, in, in many ways, right. I, I tend to like this and, 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 you know, you and I kind of go back this on, on forth on Twitter sometimes where my focus is really on spending. I would love to see most of this come from spending. And in, in some case, I think your, your point could be, look, it is mostly spending <laughs> it 60%, I think, right. It's right yeah. around there. Yeah. It, it, it is on the spending side, you, you know, and I think that's important. And, and that's one reason why I've, I've um, been a fan of your work and the work that you are doing at CRFB uh, committee for responsible federal budget is that I do think that y'all look at it from a more central centrist approach. Um, there may, there are going to be some things for, for me who, who's more of a classical liberal uh, more lowercase libertarian in a lot of ways. Um, I, I'm going to be like, okay, I, I don't like a carbon tax. I, I don't, I would rather not be a carbon tax or I don't, I would rather not, have a surtax or things of that nature. But at the same time, it brings up some difficult questions about where are you going to start cutting? Uh, because a lot of it is difficult when you think about Medicare, which I like how you started with um, lower healthcare costs. I mean, that is a substantial part of this. And when you see inflation with the number that came out today of 7.7% um, increase year over year, headline CPI inflation, even the core, you know, 6.3%, well above the 2% growth rate, or, you know, if we were going to be back to that level. But but you're, you're right that a, a big portion of that is going to be healthcare, um, housing, which which is, is, continues to have some some movement up where there's still some heating up going on in housing and rental rates. Um, but you are going to see that. And so kind of digging into that a little bit is reduce and reform Medicare provided payments of 300 billion. How, how would we, how could we do that? Is that kind of an approach that the Biden administration has taken or is that a little something you're thinking a little different? I mean, so unfortunately the Biden administration hasn't really done anything on, on healthcare um, okay. other than the inflation reduction act. I shouldn't say that they haven't done anything outside of prescription drugs. So the inflation reduction yeah. act and Reduce prescription drug costs. They haven't done anything in the providers. True. But um, what's cool, and you know, like our plan has spending and revenue, but we tried where possible to do spending proposals that we think Democrats would like and revenue mm. proposals that Republicans would like, or at least fuck be okay with. What's cool in the healthcare area is there's actually a lot of bipartisan agreement on what to do, even though the two parties never work together on it. So yeah. for example, <laughs> um, within reducing provider payments, a lot of what we talk about were policies that were in President Trump's budgets that you worked on, things like um, as I mentioned, pay the same amount of money for care provided at different sites. You shouldn't get more money just because you're providing something in a hospital versus the same exact service in a doctor's right. clinic. Reduce excessive payments to post-acute care facilities, things like home health, um, cut payments for bad debts. There's a lot of stuff like this. This was in President Trump's nice. budget. They were in President Obama's budget. Elizabeth Warren proposed them to pay for her Medicare for All plan. These are things that have bipartisan support. And you never see Republican and Democratic co-sponsoring the same bill on them, but yet you see Republicans and Democrats both understanding these are good policies. So that's, mm. that's where we start with healthcare is where is their consensus? Um, yeah. Not every proposed healthcare is consensus. You know, we do some things that I think Republicans won't like and some things Democrats won't like, but we try where we can to find the, find the consensus. Yeah. No, and I think that's going to be important in order for us to have some major reforms uh, because in, in many ways, and 
in, in my view, I think that we are reaching a fiscal crisis, um, that we've really got to start to turn the tide of how much that we're spending. Think about the tax code, what's going to be the most, in my, in my view, kind of pro-growth. But that, but if it's pro-growth, you're going to have more economic growth that's going to bring in more tax revenue at the same time. So you are thinking about the tax revenue side. Um, but with, with interest you know, on the debt rising at a rapid rate, and now with the federal funds rate being at 4%, likely to go up to four and a half percent at the top bound um, at their next meeting. Um, and then we'll see what the, the where they actually go at the end of the day. But you're going to continue to see rising net interest on the debt that that's, that's going to be competitive with the, the national defense spending, um, which which I think you know many conservatives would be concerned about if you're spending just as much on national defense as you are on net interest. I, I really don't care if somebody's a progressive, a libertarian or conservative. I think we can think about better ways to use that money than net interest on the debt. And it's a reason for you know reducing the national debt over time and making sure that it's not continuing to be um, an impediment to economic growth and the overall size side of the budget. But then I also look at the Federal Reserve. I mean, it's given the Federal Reserve more ammunition to buy the debt print more money, um, creating some of the inflationary pressures that are going on across the economy. And so when I was looking at your blueprint, um, this is why I think it's so important to have this out there to, because I really don't see anyone else out there. I mean, I, I, you know, going with the election we just had two days ago, um, which I think there was an expectation we were going to have this bigger red wave. Um, I think, you know, the, the GOP was able to pick up quite a few seats. Maybe they'll get the house once all the things are said and done. But I also don't know that they had a pro-growth policy approach that was out there. Like what exactly are you running on besides you're just not Biden? And this is the sort of proposals that you have out here that I think both sides should start to take a deep dive into. Um, and, and what have you heard from some of those from both sides? Um, do they like it? They don't like it? What, what have you been hearing? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if politicians will, but they really should be pivoting to deficit yeah. reduction. We saw President Biden, by the way, do this for very for like a few weeks when he was trying to get the Inflation Reduction Act to the finish line. And he was rhetorically saying the right things about how deficit reduction could help with inflation. Um, Senator Manchin has been saying that for, for over a year, by the way. Um, but then a week later, he just canceled $500 billion of student debt and completely undid that. We did it a pivot towards deficit reduction. As you mentioned, um, by next year, interest costs are probably going to exceed everything we spend on children. So we spend sort of more servicing the past than investing in the future. Within maybe six or seven years, it's going to exceed the defense budget at its current track. Within a quarter century, interest is on course to be the largest part of the budget, larger than Social Security, larger than Medicare. So we got to tackle that. How do we tackle, like, and deficit reduction can do it in three ways. First of all, deficit reduction today can reduce inflationary pressures, and that means the Fed won't have to raise rates quite as much, or they can bring them back down quicker, right? So maybe instead of going to 5.5% as their terminal rate, they'll only go to 5%, and then they'll get back down faster. Secondly, um, less debt means less interest payments because- you know, the same interest rate on less debt means less interest, right? It's just the same way if you have a lower credit card balance, you pay less interest payments or lower mortgage. And then third, over the medium term, I think the research is pretty clear that um, that debt actually just drives interest rates up a little bit um, by crowding out other private investment um, by by sort of the more debt there is, the more they have to chart, the more they have to reward people to take that debt. And so deficit reduction can very much help with our medium term interest rate and interest cost problems. But we have to do it. And that, again, is going to require both parties to do things they don't want to do. Um, you know, I re I'm reminded that towards the end of the Simpson Bowles deliberations, we had this almost final package, and it was our last meeting of all the members. And Senator Tom Coburn, the late senator from Oklahoma, who was, I think, ranked maybe the most conservative member of the Senate at the time, mm -hmm. or 
top top five most conservative. He he took out the report and he said, "There's a lot of things I I like in this. There's a lot of things I hate in this." But all republics, all major republics, all major sort of empires, they all have failed, um, and they've all failed for fiscal reasons. And the only way they don't fail is if people do something that they don't want. And if people take something that, and he was like, and I understand I can't have everything I want. And so he supported the package. He supported a package that he definitely, there's pieces of that were an anathema to what he had been, you know, talking about for his, for his 40 year career. But he understood that as part of a bigger package, um, you have to make some sacrifices because we got to tackle this debt situation or, or, or we risk sort of failing as a great power. Uh, yeah, I agree, Mark. And I think I was, I was caught a little bit off guard by what you said at the beginning of that statement, um, where the net interest on the debt will exceed how much we spend on children. Is that what you said? Yeah, I believe by next year. Wow. Yeah, I, I hadn't seen that stat, but that's that's quite um, that's interesting. I, mean, I like the way you put it too, because instead of kind of an in, in investment or spending on the future, uh, we're having to pay for things from the past. <laughs> and and the debt right. in many ways is just a redistribution, um, right? From things that have happened in the past. To our, to our cost to the future, um, which brings it us, us, us into what I like to talk a little bit about is on the student loan um, uh, uh, debt, you know, sort of sort of forgiveness is what it's been called. Uh, I've kind of called it the redistribution scheme. Um, but I but I've really liked the work that, that you and the committee have done on this. Um, why don't you explain some some about the work that you've been doing on the uh, student loan issue? Sure. Well, let me start with this. I'm not a small yeah. government guy. I'm not a big government guy. I'm a I'm a let's have a good government guy. And one area where I think investment actually makes a lot of sense is in human capital, right? In in education and children. Um, and so I would support a package, for example, that um, put more money into the Pell Grants program or put more money into universal pre K, so long as it's paid for appropriately. That's not what student debt cancellation is. What student yeah. debt cancellation is is it is taking decisions that have already been made and giving people a windfall for that, right? These are people that took out student debt and it is saying, we don't care um, how much you spent. We don't care what your outcomes were. We're going to send you 10 or $20,000. Um, now, as it turns out, people with college education are higher income than everybody else. And so even though the Biden administration designed this to try to be progressive, the way they made it doubled if you got Pell Grants, we estimate still about two thirds of the benefit will go to the top half of the income spectrum. Um, that's based on current income. It'd be even more regressive if you look at lifetime income because mm. people with college education um, earn more over their over their lifetimes on, on, a, on a delay. So this is regressive. Um, it's inflationary. We estimated it would add about a quarter point to the inflation rate. That's not like massive relative to our 7% inflation, but it's large relative to things the federal government can do. And it's clearly in the wrong direction. It adds to inflation because it gives people money to spend. There was just an article today that said something like 73% of people are going to use their student debt cancellation to eat out more and go on vacations. Uh, I'm in favor of, you know, people spending their money to go on vacations and eat out more, sure. but not spending my money, not spending the taxpayers uh, money. This, the, the president is touting this as sort of relief for people that really need it, but um, in providing relief to a few people that really need it, it's provi providing a lot of cash to people that don't need it at all. So it's going to worsen inflation. It's relatively regressive. It's going to cost, just the cancellation is about $400 billion. If you add in all the other sort of bells and whistles, including changes to income-driven repayment, we may be closer to $650 billion. We'll know soon. And and, and, those, are, and those are over a decade, right? Yeah, it's complicated. The way that we measure okay. student loan um, is it's basically what's the net present value of the amount that we've canceled. So it's kind of like a one-time cost. Um, that'll be in cash flow 
we probably get to 400 billion about after about 15 years on a cash flow basis but i think appropriately it's a it's a weird budget thing but we measured all in the first in the first year um, yeah. and just fundamentally it's unfair um you yeah. know only 12% of people will get this benefit and they are they chose to take out this debt to invest in an asset that's going to give most of them a very high return and it doesn't seem really fair to send them money folks that chose not to go to college or haven't yet gone to college but their tuitions are going to be higher as a result or paid off their debt already or worked through college, they didn't have to take out any debt, they get nothing. Yeah, very true. Uh, I mean, just to be honest about it, I mean, I would benefit from it. I, I have student loan debt, <laughs> you know, um, but I also believe strongly in personal responsibility. I, I took on that debt and those student loans, um, paying for school myself as a first-generation college student, that I, I otherwise wouldn't have been able to go. Uh, but I also knew that I needed to take on some um, uh, major in something that was going to pay me back later on <laughs> at, at, at wages that I could be able to pay for that debt. And, and I think we should be uh, disincentivizing personal responsibility and creating moral hazard. I mean, I think this would also I – mean, I know that – some of the work that you've done, Mark, is show that, you know, look, we'd probably be back in the same sort of student loan debt uh, issue, the cost, the overall amount within just a few years, because tuition's going to go up. More people are going to take student loans because they're going to be, they're going to have this incentive now that, okay, if want, they're going to just forgive it later. Why don't I go ahead and take it on again? So we're going to be back right in the same place again. Yeah. I'm, I'm less worried about the moral hazard where people don't want to work because I think people are okay. still going to earn the most. But I'm very concerned about the moral hazard where colleges raise tuition a lot because, you know, borrowers know, well, I may not have to ultimately pay all this. I'm even more concerned where colleges start offering a lot more low quality degrees. Some of them totally garbage degrees from these sort of not for profit institutions. Others of them not garbage degrees, but just not worth the money. You know, there's some there we all I'm not going to pick on one major, but we all know the majors that just don't have a high return. And if, you know, sort of. You want to do that for yourself because it's it's um, fulfilling. Um, I think that's that's great, but we shouldn't be sort of creating this weird subsidy that gets colleges to offer a bunch of these low low value degrees. It's just not a good way to do business. No, no that's right. Well, one of the things I want to talk to you a little bit about is moving more towards you know state government. Um, within our system of federalism, um, I've worked on, a lot on state budgets in Texas, working some now in Louisiana on their budget and on fiscal reforms and rules across many states. Um, and what I what I like to see is more of what's being done at the federal level be done more at the state level. Um, and, and also at the other side, the other way is to take the key reforms that things did seem to be work well at the state level to work at the federal level. Um, I know there's been some try of that with safety net reform, um, you know, with the block grants that go out for TANF and other types of programs. What are some of your thoughts about the connection between state and the federal government and maybe some reforms that we could make moving forward that would, that would help out with the federal budget? Yeah. I mean, look i'm going to sort of play this down the middle for a second which is that please um, i think there's I, I think that there's a really interesting debate over what is the appropriate state versus federal law how we should do federalism and i've seen you know going back 40 years i've seen ideas for sort of trades where maybe states take on all of education and and federal government takes on all of healthcare, things like that and i find those really interesting and we should continue to have those discussions but meanwhile we should at least make sure that the current splits are working as intended so, for example, um, the Medicaid program is a joint federal state program where the federal government picks up, on average, 50 to 60 percent of the cost. But then states have all these tricks that they can use. You tax a health care provider and then you send them back that same money in a higher payment. And then you tell the federal government they cost more or you send money to your state run college, you know, university hospital 
and you overspend the money to subsidize them. And so I think mm. we should start with making sure the existing relationship worked as intended. Uh, like a lot of states that are supposed to get a 55% mat- match are actually really getting a 65% match because they're playing all mm. these tricks. And the same thing happens in infrastructure and the same thing happens in education where state and local governments play all these games. The federal government encourages it, frankly. Um, and let's start by getting that right. And then I think we should have that bigger discussion over what is the, what's the appropriate split. Yeah, no, that, that's a great point. No, I agree with you. I think that we should be looking more at that. It's just like TANF. You know, Texas receives about a billion dollars. Well, they spend a billion dollars on TANF. About half comes from the federal government, half from the state funds. Um, but a lot of that goes to bureaucracy. Only 4% of it actually goes to basic public assistance. Mm-hmm. And I, I agree with you. We need to find ways to better spend that money so that the money goes to the people you're actually trying to help. And, and I think we need to be doing that across, across government. Um, one of the things that I've been... Um, uh, kind of a fan of is doing efficiency audits, like independent efficiency audits of some of these programs. Texas just did that for TANF, um, kind of going through some of those numbers now, but they are showing, hey, look, here's some improvements on things that you could do to provide transparency, but also some key reforms uh, by looking at some of these these measures. I know the, the Reagan administration did that with the Grace Commission back in the day. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on any of that. Well, let me start with where states have the resources and the incentives they can be the best innovators that we have. Yeah. And I really believe in this laboratory of democracies approach where they can find all sorts of new approaches. But where they don't have the incentive or the resources, it can be a disaster. So take our unemployment system. Um, mm. It's really entirely federally paid. It's complicated, but it's effectively, it's entirely federally paid. And as a result, the states haven't updated their systems for like 40 years. If you remember back to the beginning of the pandemic, um, you'd apply for unemployment and it might take you four months before you actually got approved. And in DC, they sent you paper on, they sent you a form on dot matrix paper. Remember those old printer paper with the little holes in the side? They sent you that. And then they send you a separate email saying, ignore the paper we sent you. That's automated in our system. And we'll send you something later. So like states need to update their operations where, and the federal government may need to change the incentives because in some cases they're just not doing well. Whereas in other cases, um, they really have the leg up because they can be a lot more flexible than the federal government can. Yeah, no, that's that's right. And there were a lot of challenges with the unemployment insurance and the payouts and everything else during during COVID and the pandemic. And, and maybe that brings us into that part of the discussion. You know, over the last two and a half years now, the, you know, there's been a lot going on. Right. There was the pandemic with COVID-19. Um, there were the shutdowns that happened. There was the CARES Act. There were the multiple acts um, that have been passed during that time. You know, you also have the COVID um, COVID money tracker. Was it COVID money? CovidMoneyTracker.org. You got it. Yeah, that one. Yeah. Okay. I thought that's what it was. CovidMoneyTracker.org. I've really found that has been helpful throughout this time as well. Um, and just kind of looking at it now, you know, the legislative action, $6 trillion. Five and a half trillion dollars has been dispersed so far. Uh, Federal Reserve action had about seven trillion. Administrative action of a trillion. So I, I guess when you think about just the spending part of it, as around seven trillion dollars, right? Yeah, I mean those numbers aren't fully additive, but I think you could think of it yeah. as we put seven trillion dollars into the into the economy. Some of that was loans, that actual loans that won't cost us very much, but um, yeah. we spent at least. Five and a half or six trillion dollars net, and, and there was a, there was a run up, of course, in in the national in, in the deficit, um, over three trillion dollars in twenty twenty. Uh, what was it? Two point eight trillion dollars in twenty twenty one. One point four trillion dollars in in twenty twenty two. So it's going down, um, but that's a lot of money to put into the economy, and and then the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, you know, more than doubled 
from $4 trillion to basically $9 trillion. It's come down a little bit now. Um, but that's just a lot of money that's put into the economy. And, and one of the discussions that I know I've been going on for a while, and I, I, I forget where you were, at, you were at on this, but is like the transitory versus persistent inflation. Um, to me, I always thought it was going to be persistent, just given how much money was put into the economy, especially by the Federal Reserve, um, that it was going to last a while. There were, there were transitory factors, of course, with the supply chains, and hopefully some of that would smooth out. And maybe that's the reason why it wasn't as transitory as what it could have otherwise been, because a lot of those supply chain disruptions are still ongoing with China you know, shutting down multiple times and everything else. Um, but I, I hope that we can learn some lessons from this period of time um, to not repeat them. I mean, there's there's likely to be another pandemic in the future. Um, I, you know, I, I would think that we wouldn't just send out checks to everyone. Maybe we should have more of a targeted approach with a lot of these policies. But I, I wonder what your thinking is, because, you know, I, I think um, I, I'm not sure that we've always agreed on stuff about about the pandemic, which is good. I like the, the back and forth. And so I'd love to get your thoughts on what's been happening over the last couple of years. Sure. Do we have a whole other podcast? Uh, I know, right? Uh, we just got a few more minutes. This. So. At the beginning of the at the beginning of the pandemic in the spring of 2020, the economy contracted 10 percent, probably contracted way more because we can't measure monthly. You know, the the actual unemployment rate probably went up to something close to 20 percent, um, maybe a little bit more. We were in free fall and we didn't know what was going to happen. Um, there was a very real risk that was started as intentionally trying to put the economy on ice, you know, sending people home for originally it was just going to be two weeks, if you remember would turn mm -hmm. into um, a joblessness crisis, would turn into a mortgage crisis, would turn into a financial crisis, would turn into a depression. And so while the CARES Act in 2020 was by no means perfect, it was the right thing to do, in my opinion, to get people those checks as fast as possible, knowing they're poorly targeted. Yeah. To get that unemployment benefits up. I would not have done plus 600 at any point, but like, but at plus 300, even at plus 600, it wasn't, it wasn't that bad that we did it. We should have done yeah. plus 300, but get that money out, get the money to businesses, get the money to states, just do whatever we can to keep you having it. That was the right decision, in my opinion, in the CARES yeah. Act. Fast forward to the end of 2020, we had another bill, the Response and Relief Act, that was about $900 billion. That was the economy was slumping then, but things were starting to normalize. We knew that we had a vaccine. I think that was a reasonable piece of legislation. I would have done it differently. I would have targeted sure. a reasonable piece of legislation. Then fast forward to March of 2021. We had about, at that point, still well over a trillion dollars of stimulus in the pipeline that hadn't been spent. The economy was clearly on the verge of a big reopen. Um, our best estimates was the economy was $300 billion short of its potential, mm -hmm. and we spent $2 trillion. That was a huge mistake. Um, and that was the American Rescue Plan Act. The American ARPA. Rescue Plan. In my opinion, a huge mistake. We sent people checks that they absolutely did not need. We sent states half a trillion dollars. At the time, we thought they needed $100 billion. In retrospect, they needed zero. We sent them half a trillion dollars just through that bill. You know, we extended unemployment benefits. I think that was reasonable, but we extended them at too high a rate. And um, overall, that bill covered the output gap like six times over. And mm -hmm. I think it's a big reason. You almost immediately saw the inflation after that. You saw people take their checks and go right to the right to the used car lot. Frankly, I mean, I don't. Yeah. I know it. I think a lot of this supply chain stuff is really a red herring. There were supply mm. chain problems because there was so much demand. Like yeah. COVID's a real supply issue. Russia, Ukraine is a real supply issue. A boat being stuck in a canal is not a real supply chain issue. That happens all the time. It's just usually not a big deal because we have inventory because you know we have excess capacity. The this is mainly a demand issue, and so I think yeah. that. We would have had inflation even if we had not done American Rescue Plan, and some of it was would have been the consequence of the CARES Act. But I think we made yeah. the right choice 
in 2020 to spend too much knowing there could be consequences. I think we made absolutely the wrong choice in 2021 to spend $1.9 At the time, I thought spending $1 trillion would have been plenty of excess money and would have been sort of a safe overshoot. In yeah. hindsight, we probably should have just spent money on a little bit on unemployment and on vaccines and treatments and things like that and, and call, mm. call it a day um, yeah. because it added to inflation. And some of us, I know Larry Summers and gets all the credit, but some of us that are on this podcast were also saying, hey, this is probably going to cause inflation. And yeah. look, when when the reality starts to match the theory, maybe there's a reason for that, right? So <laughs> the problem was the reality was matching the theory, but not the model, right? Yeah. And so people said, aha, the reality must be wrong and the theory must be wrong, but the model is right. It turned out the model was wrong. The theory and the reality are right. You can't just put money into an economy that's already saturated and expect it's going to sit there and not add to price pressures. Yeah. Yeah. Well put. Well put, Mark. Um, I, and I think we're, we're still going to be seeing some of the consequences of a lot of that action for a while. Um, I'm hopeful that inflation will start to come come down. We'll still see. I mean, there's there's still the underlying inflationary pressure that could keep it a little higher for, for a yeah. while. Um, but there are some actions, you know, slowing down the government spending, even though Biden is trying to take uh, credit for the one point four trillion dollar in deficits. And, and look, to your credit, you've been pointing that out. Like, look, this is really from the one time expenditures in the pandemic, mostly just going away, drying up that that's brought down the one point four trillion. Even the CBO, you're right. It was about a couple of days ago now yeah. they put out a blog post that specifically showed that. Yeah, we estimate the deficit fell from 2.8 trillion to 1.4. We estimate actually over 100% of that is declining overly. Now, like, but still, it's good news because it means we don't have that continued huge fiscal impulse. Yeah. You know, interest rates are now higher than they were um, before the pandemic. And so what's left is sort of what's left in terms of inflationary pressures is the persistent pressure. Some of that persistence, yeah. the money people still save their spending, but some of it is really challenging things like these wage price spirals where people doesn't it's not an upward spiral. But if people see 7% inflation and and, the, and they demand a 5% pay increase instead of a 3% pay increase, that can then feed into next year's inflation. And when businesses see inflation is high, they use that for the price setting. When you know um, renters see it's high and they use it for, for their price expectations, all of these things can cause inflation to last. And it means the Federal Reserve is going to slam the brakes even harder to get under control. And that's yeah. going to, that's very well may cause a recession. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. Well, you're right. There are so many more things that we could talk about. You know, I think we, we mentioned some of that in the excess savings. I think Jason Furman had a good um, tweet out recently on that chart that showed the $2.2 trillion and then it's down some, but we still have massive amount of savings. And I think that's influencing people's decisions about whether to go back to work. Um, yeah. how much to spend. There's there's a lot of other factors and economic issues that are going to influence the budget. I know you're going to stay on target with it. Uh, I'm going to keep watching the stuff that you're doing, Mark. And um, But thank you for all the work that you do just in general and um, trying to provide some really good data out there for people so we can understand the budget, um, get things under control, and, and hopefully more people will look at this blueprint because I think it's really important to figure out how do we really start to get control? Because if we don't, we're going to have a larger fiscal crisis and other issues that we're going to have to deal with later. Um, so what, do you have any uh, last minute words, parting words for us? Hey, look, the best thing we can do to avoid a recession is to start doing deficit reduction now. And that's yeah. going to mean some things that either party doesn't like. But thoughtful deficit reduction can reduce inflationary pressures, can make the Fed have to raise rates less, and can actually avoid a recession. And so there's really no time to wait. The worst thing we can do, by the way, is to continue to add to the deficit as we have been in, in recent years. Um, if policymakers can't even make it the next two months without adding to the deficit, I'm not sure what hope they have.
Well, those are those are great words. I hope they do not do that. <laughs> uh, but we, we shall see what happens. Um, thank you, Mark, for being on the Let Fuel Prosper show. Thank you for listening. Um, please give us a five-star rating, if you will. That would be much appreciated. Um, have, a, have a wonderful day and let people prosper. <laughs>